0: Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Hey, Panoply listener, looking for more podcasts for your playlist? Check out The Vulture TV podcast for great discussion about the latest TV shows, or check out Sex Lives for fascinating conversations about sex. You can find them on iTunes, panoply.fm, or on your favorite podcasting app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. The bi weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre post yet still very racial America. You could say all that, or you could just call us about race. I'm Tanner Colby, and here with me in the Panoply Studios in New York are my co discussants, Raquel Cepeda. Hello, Raquel. Hello and our very special guest, Rebecca Carroll, columnist for The Guardian and author of several narrative nonfiction books about race in America, including the award-winning Sugar in the Raw. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. On this week's show, white journalists assigned to tackle black subjects and the ever-changing non-binary nature of identity in America. Then after that, we'll wrap things up with Yo, Check This Out, our tips and recommendations. But first, Raquel, what's up with you?
1: Well, it's a beautiful uh, Hispanic Heritage Month day. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's good for gigs now because, you know, they look for people with Latino last sounding last names.
0: Right. You got to make hay while the sun is shining.
1: Yeah, exactly. So now I actually want to be addressed as Miss Cepeda for the rest of the show, please. Will do. Miss <laughs> Cepeda. Or Raquel. Cepeda. Yes, cause, so I can get some more gigs. But anyway, it's been interesting. I've met some uh, college students, some new college students who are interesting. I spoke at a school in Staten Island, during my talk, somebody asked me a question about Donald Trump, we talked about it, he made some jokes, et cetera, et cetera, and this white kid, white male, he felt vilified, like I vilified him, because I spoke about all white men and white people as, as a monolith, because mm-hmm. of my m- making fun of Donald Trump and the people, I didn't make fun of people who support him, but I said that we have right. to like, you know, uh, stay woke, to that element of our society he said well you know not everybody's like that you how would you like it if people were lumped all all the hispanics together and all blacks together and, oh. and i was like um and everybody <laughs> just got very quiet and just looked at him until so he just sat down because they were like Oh, uh, where are you living but i i don't know maybe he never left staten island
0: well frankly we are sick and tired of being lumped <laughs> together and it's got to stop it's got to stop
1: all Reve- y'all like donald trump
0: Rebecca, any news to share with our listeners? What's you know, going on with funny,
2: you? It's funny. It's funny you should ask what's going on with me because I, I was thinking about this after um, Raquel invited yeah, me baby. to be on the show. This we're coming up on maybe what what <laughs> will mark almost exactly a year that when that time when I wrote um, that piece in the New Republic about leaving mainstream media after a series of racially charged incidents throughout my career, which sort of together culminated in like the anti, it gets better, sort Mm -hmm. of like, it gets a lot worse, homie. Um, And so I put out this battle cry that I needed to sort of take a minute and step back out of the mainstream newsroom proper. Obviously, I still write a column for The Guardian, but not in the space. And so um, in the past year, I've been working with a nonprofit organization, a really lovely nonprofit organization. But what I realized is that nonprofits particularly those that are serving black and brown communities, are fueled primarily by white guilt, mm-hmm. whereas mainstream media outlets, particularly in this time where race and racism are like clickbait, are, are driven by white privilege. And so it's sort of just a matter of what I'm more accustomed to. And I realize that I'm, I'm more adept at managing white privilege because I grew up surrounded by it, and so I'm bilingual in that way. But also, mm-hmm. mm. white privilege, you can there's a chance that you can call it out and have there be some accountability, and have that person experience something other than guilt, because it's not really about guilt. And also, once the white folk goes into the guilt place, it's really hard to reel it back in. Yeah. Because it's self-serving. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I'm looking to make some moves. I don't know what's next on on the horizon, but it's but it's funny that it, that it, it's just about a year exactly that I've been out. So we'll we'll post that article for
1: people yeah, for our we'll listeners put- to be able to refer back. Right, sure. You, I refer back to. So
0: I have uh, some, some. What's up with you? Some can I fun, ask? Exciting news! You can. What yeah. is going on with me? What's Nate?
1: going on with you, Tanner? So I Tanner?
0: Just, I just found out yesterday. You know, uh, we announced last spring that the Raytown School District in Kansas City had picked up my book. Yeah. Some of my best friends are black for their ninth grade curriculum. Yes. And I just found out yesterday that the MCC Metropolitan Community College in kansas city has picked up my book for That's its one awesome. campus read Yay. next year so that'll be fun awesome. and be uh, some curriculum stuff going on around that so uh, you should we'll have like some
1: skype sessions with them
0: i should know i'm doing skype sessions there's a Rockhurst university there's two classes doing it this is all by the way the result of one librarian a very lovely woman named angel who is shout a, a, out to a, angel h- yeah. shout out yeah. to angel who is a big proponent of the book and is basically just telling everyone in any decision-making capacity in Kansas City that, that they should read it. And so so, so Angel's
1: a, living up to her name.
0: Yes, she's living <laughs> up to her name. Also,
1: they're librarians, man. you got yeah, to love librarians. Yeah, you got to love librarians. Yes. And so, we're not just saying that because we want to move our books. It's, right. It's, it's, <laughs> we do I love love librarians. how passionate they are. They can be.
0: Yes. So our first topic today is this past week, Jennifer Sr., a contributing editor at New York Magazine, published an excellent piece, I thought, called The Paradox of the First Black President – looking at criticisms and thoughts about Obama's presidency from black leaders. And we're not actually going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about Obama. What we are going to talk about is the fact that Jennifer Sr. is white, which prompted New York Post writer Josen Cummings to write a post at Very Smart Brothers asking why more generally, not just about Jennifer Sr., but why white writers consistently get assigned subjects about race while qualified black writers go unrepresented in major publications. The same criticism last week was also leveled at Vanessa Gregadoris, who wrote The Passion of Nicki Minaj for a New York Times Magazine this week about being another white writer who fumbled a subject about black culture. And so here we have a situation that has been a, It goes back to your essay that you wrote for The Guardian last year about being fed up with the racial politics of newsrooms. For The New News Republic, room. actually. So yeah, for The New Republic, yep. um, about being fed up with the racial politics of newsrooms. Rebecca, if you could, for our, our listeners who aren't journalists... What's going on in newsrooms? How do these editorial decisions get made? How do these assignments get handed out? And why does time and again this problem keep coming up where writers of color are shut out and these subjects, even when they do get covered, are covered by maybe the wrong people?
2: So these two specific examples are very particular. I, I, full disclosure: I know um, and am friends with Jennifer Senior, who wrote the Obama piece. I saw drafts of the of the story. She, uh, you know, asked about resources and folks to talk to, and ran certain lines and was very, very did her due di- diligence. Was very mm-hmm. concerned about being a white writer writing about Obama. That said, New York Magazine has zero black editors and senior black editors or writers. And that's one of the reasons also that Jen had reached out to me, but it's been written about, it's been talked about over and over because it's a very particular way of looking at New York, that magazine. It's very (laughs) much like we are going to decide from this sort of space of whiteness and hipness before hipster, that word and that idea because hip is very different than hipster, but we're going to decide how we're going to anoint New York city and how it's going to look and how it's going to be the whole strategist that whole section <laughs> is like it's yes. a lifestyle
1: magazine and mm-hmm. also the way they cover gentrification I mean oh my god I feel like you're taking me to church on a Friday because <laughs> you are, I mean I'm to see it be covered one way over and over and over again it wouldn't be as infuriating if they had different perspectives
0: right which brings us to the how do the what's the editorial process
2: okay so Jennifer Sr. has just left. She's replacing Jenna Maslin at The New York Times, going to another publication that we'll talk about. But, has, you know, has, has interviewed Obama before, is a very solid. Uh, I mean, one of the hardest-working journalists I know and very solid with politics. And, you know, that they had been talking about the piece because, coming to the end, it's an obvious piece to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If there had been any black editors or... I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of what it, how it would have gone down... But this is an example of what I was saying earlier about how mainstream media is sort of propelled, driven, anchored in white privilege. I know for a fact that the editor-in-chief of the magazine wants it this way. That's how he wants it to be written. That's how it, you know, and had all sorts of ideas of how it should be put out there. So far as the title, I think that there was an issue about the title, which was, it was always supposed to be the paradox, but it ended up being what Obama didn't do for black folks. You know, essentially Mm -hmm. like Piers Morgan, Rupert Murdoch, kind of like a white person saying, what is it? What does the president need to do for black people when black people had no agency at all in that questioning mm-hmm. of how that was? So how would it go down? Usually in a situation like that, you know, if you catch wind or if you're a senior editor and you're in the editorial meeting, you're like, well, I maybe like to write that. You are put to task. How good are you? How you're can- saying
1: if you're a writer of color. Right? writer or editor yeah so i'm saying
2: yeah. what if there was a black writer senior black writer or editor at new york magazine in the you know at the editorial staff meeting the idea comes up the one black writer says i think maybe i should write that mm-hmm. i would like to write that not just because i'm black but because there's a certain sensibility i mean i wrote about this also in, in that piece for the, right. for the new republic mm-hmm. which is um when i was a tv producer wanting to book a segment with a famous black actor not just because i'm black but i know that when you enter into a space that is all white and you are of color, it's kind of nice to have somebody (laughs) who looks like you. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, that's just, you know. To have somebody to non-verbally communicate with. (laughs) So rather than have Obama think, okay, here this white magazine, predominantly white magazine, it is a white magazine, is gonna come and interview me. I know exactly what's gonna be said, exactly how it's gonna go down, exactly how it's gonna be presented. A black writer, even a young writer, Who would, you know, doesn't have to be, you know, someone a veteran or someone to have a young black rookie or a writer come up to to interview Obama. I mean, that would be like a refreshing approach, but that's an uncomfortable approach, and that's seeding power, and that's not what what most newsrooms want to do.
0: So, what are some of the other than the 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 TV producing? Both of you, what are some of the most egregious examples? Of newsroom bias you've experienced.
1: I've had so many, I had to look at this. Yeah. these are all my notes. Are right? you to make Or just but pick the, pick gonna, the top I'm not, two. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I can't go through Yeah, because I also bowed out after a while. I was just, I couldn't take it anymore. Um, the being condescending to was like it was just taking a toll on me. And I, after a while, there was one day when I was just talking to an, uh, my boss, uh, who published publisher of a magazine I used to work for, and I remember going like this and scratching my head, and clumps of hair was coming, were, yeah. was coming out, mm-hmm. and I had alopecia. I like if you can imagine some bald spots on my head. I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, um, but I had to take it because I at the time I was a single mom. But I remember, you know, when I was the editor of Russell Simmons One World, um, meeting with other very high-level executive placement people at these companies. And I remember one time, this lady asked me, "Well, do you know how to interview white men?" And I'm thinking to myself, like, I want to say, I want to fucking punch her right in in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that, but that's what's going on in my mind because so many things, and I'm thinking to myself, was Sting White, because mm-hmm. I think he's. I mean, I've, and I don't want to have to like name drop. I've interviewed people from you know mercenaries in Sierra Leone mm-hmm. to to international global big stars and stuff. But I don't say anything because I just like I feel like I imploded. And it was kinda like the la- I almost didn't want to be a, like a writer or, or an editor and I didn't want to be that anymore. See,
2: I said the stuff. That's what see that and that's, you know, it's Oh, that's it's one a- time I didn't say it.
1: But there have been times that I've said things <laughs> and then you get la- you get labeled an angry Latina.
2: Which is am you know, I'm already, equally stressful, yeah. right? I yes. mean you, you mentioned the alopecia and the clumps of hair. I mean in one job it was so stressful, it was the first time that a, a doctor ha- suggested that I get uh, a prescription for Xanax. Like in my in my entire life, you know, I was telling her how I was feeling and what work was like and how I was constantly getting calls and, and having these arguments, you know, I was trying to uh, launch a black vertical and the argument was about whether, you know, white writers um, should be able to write for it and this and that it was an ongoing struggle and she said you know you need to maybe try to <laughs> maybe let me write you a prescription for xanax and i was like something is wrong something is wrong
0: yeah you want clonopin
2: well whatever <laughs> what <did you> whatever <laughs> say? i said you, you want clonopin <laughs> <laughs> this Jenner. is just i'm just trying to live out here you know i'm just trying to mm-hmm. tell stories yeah and write really pretty things you know what i mean like not obviously hard-hitting and interesting and and smart and imaginative and intellectually curious and i got to do this all the time back and forth and then and, and
1: you know you can identify because you're a woman as well. We're talking about intersectionality here. So I remember another time when I was meeting with these guys, they were white guys who owned um, a, hip, a hip-hop magazine that did very well, and they wanted to branch out into the Latino market. And I met with them, and they were like, you know, you're really cool, and your husband says you're cool. Not that I have my own career, but you know, your husband says you're really, you're really good girl. You're cool. Yeah. He doesn't mm-hmm. even use that word. But, you know, after my last experience, I just, I just, I just can't. I don't think I can, I can hire a, a, a woman. And then you know you you know you're you know you got that fire, so I just got up and walked out. I didn't even say goodbye. I didn't say anything. And I you know again I wanted to fucking throw his computer out of the window and like just fucking right like just just.
2: I yeah I had a a a, a boss somebody. publisher at a at a magazine where I worked. There was this huge, big name uh, literary figure who is known for enjoying young ladies, and uh, and said um yeah. Let's get somebody uh, looking straight at me. Let's get somebody really cute to interview him. Now, I mean, one, I could interview, him. <laughs> but went right o- past that. Like, n- it no, doesn't it doesn't matter, matter that, that you're, you're experienced yeah. or, or capable, and also probably not cute enough or young enough mm-hmm. for this particular figure.
1: Right? Yeah. It's uh, this. Uh,
2: this, uh, like I said, I have pages
1: and yeah. pages, and then right. and then now, like I even stop. Like, I stopped pitching altogether. I mean, first of all, you know, I'm happy writing Travel for the New York Times because my editor happens to, you know, I got lucky for now. My editor protects my voice because now I just find also is a lot of nondescript kind of writing where it just oh, it doesn't have any kind of nuance yeah. and flavor. Not all the time, but a lot of the times, right? With a lot of exceptions. I don't want to say that about yeah. it. I don't want to make a blanketed statement because, you know, um, it's just not true. But it's a lot of times, you know, I have to come in, even now, after writing for over, tw- you know, for 20 years, but being recommended by a white dude, mm-hmm. sometimes you pitch and pitch and pitch for a one off doesn't really pay anything. Right. But they, you know, like I remember I was trying to pitch a story about, you know, getting basically my life canceled. Like, you know, Cristela Alonzo said that when she got her life canceled on her sitcom, you know, I have my book. Remember, I told mm-hmm. you that. I, mean, I told everybody this, that uh, Barnes & Noble and Simon & Schuster were at an impasse They were having some kind of beef and Barnes & Noble just canceled all the orders of my book a couple of weeks before it came out. So it's basically like having my life canceled because even today, over 60% of people who buy books, even online, yeah. will see it first in Barnes & Noble. So if you're not in there it just kills right. you, right? Anybody can identify with that, you know? Like, even if you're not in publishing, you can identify with having something canceled or having being challenged. Right. And I pitched and pitched and pitched and pitched, and even white guys were like, yo, this is a good story, you know? And they were like, well, maybe a one-off, but, you know, write it out and see, maybe write it on spec. And I can hear that the person was really young. I was just like, fuck it, I'm not doing anything. So yeah. I kind of bowed out in the same way.
2: So, yeah, yeah. so I mean, I it's bowed tire- out. It's, but like, it's tiring. It's, it, it's exhausting, and I was sort of, you know, it was this kind of but i realized also that it was very much about like i had a girlfriend say you know what girl just think of it as a sabbatical right just take some time take a minute because i was like i'm never ever ever but the truth is is that stories and storytelling and journalism is where my heart is Mm -hmm. so i feel like podcasts like this conversations like this we 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 have to keep talking we have to have there be accountability you have to have those bosses who, I mean, they're not all going to get there. You know, I mean, it's like what I do, what I what I deal with in my family. You know, I have a lot of difficulty talking with certain members of my family about race and what's going on, and you know, the lack of consciousness and energy and intellectual curiosity or interest. Not everybody's going to evolve mm. with us, but we we really do have to try to keep bringing engaging. It in. Yeah, yeah.
0: So here's here's another question, which is. Uh, uh, you know, gets to some of the sort of the paradox of this, which is, you know, Cummings' point that black voices aren't being represented is, you know, well and, and good and true and obvious. At the same time, you do hear the, the constant cry that white people need to stop avoiding race, white people need to tackle, white people need to engage with it, which ostensibly is what Senior and Vanessa Gregorius are doing here to to, to very success. It's I, adorable, I, I think that? Jennifer Senior, would far more successfully, I think Gregorius did some, made some missteps that she's been called out on for doing it poorly. So... At the same time, it seems to me that we have a paradox of having too much white POV on race and at the same time not enough. What should white people be doing? I do this. I do what these people are doing. So, th- I mean, am I doing – what What should I, don't I be doing? I think it's
2: POV. I mean, I think if you're a journalist and you're reporting on, you're not, it's not your point of view. You're actually doing the work of chronicling mm-hmm. another person, actually. I mean, I think in the case mm-hmm. of Senior's piece – I would love to. I mean, Go I'd ahead. love to know if she talked to any black folks about about before talking to Nicki Minaj. I'd love to know what her experience is, how immersed or interested. I mean, you know, there's. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's a way to mm-hmm. do interest in black and brown culture, and there's a way to not do it. Mm-hmm. Right to go in, Gregorius is is she's a, a an accl- you know a very very she's an accomplished, accomplished writer, accomplished yeah. profiler, yes. especially. Profiler. She writes a good profile, mm-hmm. and there were there were moments in that profile that I thought were beautifully written. I thought mm-hmm. it was very. I was very entertained, just because yeah, of the I mean, missteps, just,
1: but also because of the well, writing part was, was good. The writing was very strong. Yeah, the writing strong, was strong. Right?
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I s- completely understand why she was assigned to the piece, but I felt from beginning to end that she had no idea. Who she was up against, what she who she is, was contending with, that she hadn't really done her homework, that she sort of walked in there and was like,, "I can handle this. I, w-
1: I wish they would have had like somebody that was a veteran in kind of the hip hop in the world of chronicling hip hop. I remember, I mean, yeah, I remember like, you know, I'm going to say back in the day, right dream. um I remember back in the day many women were like uh, Joan Morgan, for instance, Dream, myself, a lot of different you know women were chronicling hip-hop. but it's funny because, once you write about hip-hop back in that time, because it was something that, that editors, white editors didn't want to embrace in the mainstream, you were a hip-hop journalist, and that was it. So you weren't allowed to interview, let's say, for the lack of a better phrase, white you know, businessmen, unless yeah. they were rappers, right? So you kind of like got put into this box. And then all of a sudden, not writing about hip-hop and hip-hop culture yeah. became, you know, you're risking being irrelevant now if you're not writing about that. So there's something in the writing, even though, I was entertained by her piece, and I'm and I like a lot of the writing that's out there. But there's a nuance, and there's kind of a thing that's missing. Yeah. Um, especially when I read about, let's say that um, I read about well, hip hop or like black culture, for example, um, Beyonce, a pop star like Beyonce. When I read about her in Vanity Fair, I remember how flat that piece was, and I was like, wow, if I would have had that time, that access, I know so many, you know, women that would have, like, you know, women
2: of color that would have turned that out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I liked I liked the idea that it wasn't a usual, like, some, oh, I mean, if I had been the assigning editor, I would have thought of you. I, I would have thought of Dream. I would have thought of Joan Morgan. But I liked the idea of choosing someone who was not necessarily the right fit, because I think sometimes yeah. that dynamic can bring something really interesting so f- out. Mm-hmm. That particular profile writer, I mean, I followed her work, and I know sort of how she does, and I also sort of know, I mean, I could feel it was palpable to me how she entered that room I mean I felt like she I was there with her yeah no but I but I felt like she Mm -hmm. did not look at Nikki I mean it reminded me it just reminded me of the white girls that I grew up with in high school who would look at me in this way like you are so boss I mean they wouldn't say that then because that's a word that comes out now (laughs) But you are so you know whatever but in their head they're thinking thank God I don't, she doesn't have anything I need. Thank God I don't need to have, you know, my, my skin or my, th- those hips or, or that booty or whatever. You know, I'm, again, I'm using words that I would use, but not that these girls would use. I mean, and I could just, I could feel that mm-hmm. lack of, um, <laughs> I'm not going to say cultural conversancy, but, but that's what I think. That's what I feel. Like I, like it, she didn't know. She didn't know how to, how to come to, how to step to Nikki and Nikki let her know.
1: Yeah, and I think she's just frustrated because of the way you know she's been kind of portrayed as far as this particular story, because you know she went in there talking about the drama <clears throat> with um, uh, Miley Cyrus and, and and the would-be drama with Taylor Swift, and so she apologized about you know VMA and not getting nominated for the vid- video of the year, but what she really wasn't bitching and moaning and being angry, she was just talking about the struggles of black women in pop culture and in music. And in you know, and in her world. And mm-hmm. they she just got dismissed as being basically because not being you know, for not having respectability for not playing the game, right? For not being like um um polite.
2: But from start Mill- to, from start to finish yeah. that interview was yeah. basically number three white girl coming at Nikki saying, yeah. Tell you me Do you like the drama? Yeah. Do you like the
1: drama? But yeah. so <laughs> but
2: but she started with talk to me about Miley, talk to me about Taylor. Yeah. And then she ends it with You are all about drama. Like another white girl coming at Nikki, telling her Mm -hmm. how she needs to behave. When really, I mean... And the drama
1: that she told her that she asked her if she was attracted to was the Meek Mill, yeah. and yeah. Um, and you know Drake. Drake, and then you know Wayne. Uh, it's like she's like, "Yo, those are guys. They can deal with it themselves. They're like, you know, I'm just They're doing me. They're grown men. ass men, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah." So I felt, I yeah, it was
2: it was pretty crazy. And I, I mean, yeah, and I can also feel like at the end of that interview, Nikki <laughs> just being exhausted, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so think about that in terms of bringing it back to the newsroom mm-hmm. all the time, every day, all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. like oh mm.
0: <laughs> so where do we go from here we 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 take a sabbatical
2: yes exactly I no, highly recommend have, it no you just hire more people
1: if yeah. you're gonna write if you know am I thought Jennifer seniors piece for example was really well written really well reported but I would have two three people can write the same piece from different angles just you know, we're 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 not invisible. We're here. Yeah. No. You no. Know, and again, have to get so, all the work. <laughs> so
2: the New York Times and New York, their legacy yeah. publications, and right. and and they're really holding on, you know, yeah. desperately to the infrastructure and the, you know, the privilege that has allowed them to do what they do. I mean, I th- I see more of a more of a diversification of online media in in those spaces. You know, I think that there are senior Black and Brown editors at You know, BuzzFeed and Vox and and Mike and, you know, all sort of these up and coming spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really healthy. The other thing that I had written about was once we get here, it's not enough just to hire us because there's there's all of this that we have been contending with on the way up Mm -hmm. that we bring with it. So that has to be and, and I'm not one of these folks who really believes in like diversity workshops or, you know, tra- mm-hmm. you know, this kind of training. And, but, but I do think that it's helpful to have mediated conversations and to talk about language and to talk about what kind of toll it takes without, you know, victimizing folks or pointing blame again. Mm-hmm. But to just be aware. I mean, that's what happens is that, you know, white folks take the ball. Sorry, I'm generalizing, Tanner. And I do take the ball they go I to that the they go to that but but go and then oftentimes go to two one of two places it's like the guilt it's like the guilt and the tears or it's like this defiant what are you talking about defensiveness like mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not i'm not about that and i'm not i'm not you know
0: because i yeah. you do, do, do you want to know why
2: yeah i can
0: tell you exactly why because when you're a white person who first is getting in into the racial thing for the first time you're coming at it completely new and the the only three white people you see involved in the public conversation are a academics Mm -hmm. then you have the angry white conservative who takes the defensive posture of you know uh, what's white privilege or you know there's nothing wrong why can't we all be colorblind and then you have the, the the guilty white liberal who is taking that posture and the reason you see those is those are all three forms of armor you can adopt that liberal left-wing ideology, you can adopt that right-wing ideology, or you can hide behind that academic credential and you can just use those talking points. Whereas to come out and say your own thoughts and opinions and to have your own thoughts and opinions is far, far, far more difficult. Because when you first get into this, the first blush of things that you read when you're you know, when you're learning about this is everything that is written about race is written from an ideological point of view. You pick up all the left-wing academic sociology books from academia, and you're filled with all this privileged stuff. And then you go and read all of the Shelby Steele, John McWhorter, black conservative stuff, and that's all very ideological. And so I read all of that stuff, right? And to come through after four or five years and to have my own thoughts and opinions and points of view to triangulate all these different things, because nothing is said in the public square about race that's not some... you know, ideologically driven. So you have to sort through all of it and come to your own ideas and opinions. And very, very few white people have done that. So tell us your thoughts as a reader or as a producer of journalism. Send us your ideas at showaboutrace at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Let us know what you think. Uh, And now let's hear a word from the people who pay for us to have this podcast. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, there's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern. Only on MSNBC. So now we are back and Raquel Cepeda is going to take the next leg.
1: So uh, Wesley Morris, a critic at large for the New York Times magazine, recently penned a provocative piece titled The Year We Obsessed Over Identity, about our society's shifting selves and about being in the midst of what he wrote is a great cultural identity migration and where he argued that our, quote, rigidly enforced Gender and racial lines are finally breaking down. We have indeed been in flux as it relates to gender and sexuality. But racially, well, racial fluidity is nothing new, but some say it benefits one mostly white group at the expense of mostly black and brown groups. So let's jump right in. Cue in the splashing water. <laughs> okay. Tanner and Rebecca. Um, do you agree with Morris's assessment about gender and racial walls in our society being broken down? I'll, I'll let our
0: guests take the first stab
2: gender yes race no and I don't necessarily um, think it should be broken down but I do see a lot of a lot of opening widening broadening thinking and defining when it comes to gender um I don't really know kind of how to how to jump in about why I don't think it's happening with race and why I, I think it shouldn't so Tanner why don't you you respond and then I'll get my thoughts together on that
0: I will agree with you on on the gender uh, and sexuality at any point and some would disagree with you on the racial thing I don't think it's happening I think the seeds are planting to where it could happen or is going to happen I think we're at the very beginning of it and I think in I think 2042 is going to provoke some interesting changes in this country and I think you could substitute the headline for Morris's piece and you could just say melting pot colon still working which is that different groups and cultural yes. identities and everything just keeps clashing into each other. And it's difficult and it's awkward and it's bad, but it's also produces something unusual and unique. And it just keeps churning and churning. And it was a very slow process because America was so white for so long. And now it's being rapidly accelerated, both through technology and both through the rapid influx of more people of color into this country. The process is getting much, much faster. But I think it's in many ways, it's the same thing that's been going on since this country but that's was founded. Yeah, what you're saying different, is different. Yeah.
2: Like the multi, the the melting pot still still happening. Great, that is what we want it to be, mm-hmm. which is where everybody sort of coexists and sort of clashes, and it's this and that, and it's hard and weird and interesting and and difficult and uncomfortable. But that's different than the sort of breaking down of identity, sort of what we hold fast as to who we feel we are racially is different, I think, than this kind of strict code of binary male-female. Have you guys ever heard of the PGP?
1: Yes. Preferred gender pronouns, and yeah. my mm-hmm. daughter hit me to that. Yeah. Because she's 18, <laughs> I know, that's right, what they're talking right, right. about. And it's basically gender-specific pronouns. Um, gender-specific, per- gender-neutral. Preferred neutral. gender pronouns. Yes, prefer- but it, it's, yeah, it's preferred gender pronouns. So there's three major ones, and there's like a, it's like a growing list of them. But it's she, I would identify as she, her. You'd probably identify as he, him, and then there's they, them. And it's really interesting how they're, you know, how her and her collective and her generation are like, you know, really challenging gender. But I even asked her this morning, like, do you feel the same is true for race? And she was like, uh, hell no. No. Hell no. But I knew that conversation would arise because I remember, I mean, I don't know how you guys felt when you first saw um, Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair looking smoking hot, by the way, and coming out and saying, you know, this is me. I was born this way, but this is how I, this is me. This is what I'm going into. I remember, um, you know, having several conversations with my girlfriends and just, you know, folks about now. I bet you this is going to happen with race i bet you people are going to start saying well i was born a different race i feel like i was born like i was waiting for that moment to happen and then you know um the word transracial got tossed around and i wanted to like you know which trans transracial meaning right that you're of one race and you're an adoptee that's of a different race than your parents but i
2: no you don't use that word right No, so when i was coming up it was like interracial Interracial adoption, like trans, intraracial adoption, inter, interracial, yeah, it, like a race goes uh-huh. into another race. Okay, right? trans, like to me, evokes the idea of kind of movement or a broadening or an expansion of race and races together, which was not going on at all for me. Like <laughs> I was going into a race and losing contact with all of the, all of the other one, um, but but I think that that I mean, and, and I too have talked with girlfriends and folks and in friends in in the trans community and and uh you know black and brown and white folks you can't say that you are born in a different race go ahead
0: no i would i would I, let me i'll clarify what i said i don't believe that race <clears throat> is becoming fluid in the way that like like Caitlyn jenner going you know switching from one to the other that's not at all what's happening i do think that like you know for white people 50 years ago you were white, like that's you. Uh, no, we are the white race, and you see so many people my age, like, yeah, we're white, and we take all the advantage of being white, and that's fine. But like, as far as like white nationalism, like these people who are holding on to white culture and the white race and supporting Trump, like, uh, I don't identify with that. For me, whiteness is more just like I'm kind of nothing. I'm kind of I used to be all these different white ethnic groups, and now I'm not those anymore. So I don't attach the same, you know, binariness to that that they do. And so there's still a core of these different racial identities. But around the edges, things are getting messy, things are crumbling. I am you know, Polish, German, French, and Italian. No no one of those things, those aren't races, they're different nationalities and ethnicities, but no one of those things defines me. I'm kind of a little bit of all of them. And so what you have with more mixed race people being born, more biracial people, more people growing up, born of one race or culture, growing up in a different race or culture, the boundaries are getting muddier. Different so, culture, yeah, not then, race. Because,
1: yeah. But you know what? 50, just you said 50 years ago. Just reminded me. I'm chronicling one of my favorite characters in this book I'm working on now, memoir about gentrification in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I'm chronicling the oldest living person in my building. Is Miss, I call her Miss Eleanor. And she's German and Irish. And she said that her family almost disowned her. And they were really pissed and wouldn't go to her wedding because she married a an Italian
0: Right. Something else. And now nobody Irish, would, nobody would give a shit. Black,
1: yeah, because they were considered black. Right. So it just is interesting how that's seen, but I think that's very different than what we're talking about today about this whole like dolajaling for UL race. Well, dolajaling
0: and going back and forth, yeah. the fluidity. Yeah, that's, that's nonsense. Different.
2: But also, right. Tanner, I would say to you that's great that you don't identify with that kind of binary of whiteness. I'm very pleased to know that. And I think that's also why you have are having this conversation and and other conversations and probably and hopefully it will affect how you raise your, your children. But, you know, the idea, and, and I was wondering about this because Jesse Williams recently talked about the privilege he has as a biracial person, and I wondered if that was going to swing back, the idea of biracialness coming into, into vogue. Because when I was, you know, sort of in my early 20s, 20s, people talked a lot about biracial and biracial and proud and the tragic mulatto, but then it very very quickly went out of fashion because what people see when they see us and I am also biracial. My birth mother is white and my birth father is black, is black, right? And so, you know, what people see in terms of, of jobs and opportunities and standing in line right. wherever that may be is a white male, a white man. Right. Sure. So that so so your feelings about, you know, not identifying as, you know, with all whites. I mean, this this also brings up the idea of all of all whites. All are to well, the same this, or... this
0: also goes to the question, is blackness the one identity that isn't fungible? Will blackness stay the one drop rule and everyone else gets to shift around and have new what privileges? Do you mean,
1: we'll stay the one drop rule.
0: Well, in this country, if you're black, you're black. Uh, historically, that's the way that it has been constructed
1: I think that what happens sometimes is like I've seen this in in Brazil with Pele and actually I physically seen I had a conversation at an Italian restaurant in Santo Domingo last time I was there with a professor who said he see that guy over there and he was walking in and he looked like you know he was very Americanized but he was a light skin like a, he looked like a light-skinned African-american male an older gentleman he was like well that guy's considered white here because he kind of he blew, you know in my words he blew up
0: He's yeah. a dentist,
1: so he's like paid. He's in a different, you know, And so now people see him as, okay, no, no, you're lighter, you're lighter. they like, force themselves to see something because it's money and money is making you, and the same thing happened with Pele. Mm. You know, it's like, it's like, I guess in that, I, think, I wonder if that, it will ever transfer, the idea of money making you lighter, if you will, will ever transfer here to in the States.
2: Oh, I think it- I, I think it already think has. It has. I think yeah. it already has, for sure. But I would say in terms of, um, what was the word you used, fungible?
0: Mutable, changeable.
2: <laughs> Malleable. Um, I think, and it's, the, it's sort of what I say when people bring up or say to me, there's been uh, horrors everywhere in the country and in, 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 and in other parts of the world, and, but in this country, slavery is the homepage, mm-hmm. right? It's, the dynamic is between white folks and black folks. That, that's the homepage. That's where we started in terms of the system that we you currently- You mean North America? Yes. Okay. Yes, for sure. Not the Americas. No, 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 (laughs) no, 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 not at all. In the United States of Uh America, and so that that's in the DNA Mm -hmm. of the country. That's in our lifeblood, and I and so I really don't think that black identity is going to mute or be mutable. I understand what you're saying with the black and white
1: homepage about North America, but I think we need to start seeing things differently. Because when I, well, first of all, when I think of North America, I think about Native Americans, ind- Indigenous Americans and whites. Mm-hmm. The original illegal aliens were white, were Europeans, right? Yes, absolutely right? agree. And then I see, you know, not only black Americans, but people, different people, non-white people, because I see America as the Americas, which is why I think that Latinos and black Americans carry that same, I would say, trauma in their DNA of the transatlantic slave experience, Mm-hmm. um so I don't I, I try to sh- I don't know if I can understand the black and white thing the binary conversation I think we need to kind of make it a little bit more inclusive is that also a passive yucky word
0: no I think th- a whack word I think they're definitely yeah. there's definitely you know in America you have this Hispanic population that lived in the southwest in California and Texas from even before there was a country, and you have the whole Native American genocide and that whole story, but worldwide, black-white are the two ends of the continuum. Go to, Af- go to South Africa, go to India, go to anywhere in the country, darkness and lightness are the two ends of the continuum. And that's what I think is you're saying is everything else exists on that continuum. You mean like 100, 200 years ago, because if
1: you go to the continent now, that's not the conversation that's, ha- that's happening. I mean, it's not only in South Africa. There's a lot of other countries in, 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 in Africa. Uh, where no, We're just... talking about things in a way that's not only just all the way black or all the way white.
0: No, but I'm yes, there are many things that are necessary. I'm just saying that, like, communism and fascism are the two ends of the poles, and there's lots in between. Black and white are the two ends of the poles, and there's a lot in between. So I think we're all sort of saying the same thing, that you— I you think have most these,
1: is in between. Most of everything is in between.
0: Right, but where it to, you to, you start the discussion, and that's what I think is the question about what's happening with America in 2042, and and what, where we're going. Will all Hispanics and Arab Americans and Asian Americans get to be white, and black people still be left out? Hmm. That is because every every all the Italians so, got to be white, all the Jews got to be white, all the Irish right. got to be so white. So
2: you say left out, like I would say left in. Right. <laughs> you know, as a black person, I would say I, I want to be left in as black. I don't want to be white. I don't want to, you know, um, you know what? get me, to be white. Let would me you? ask you guys something now that you're bringing that up.
1: Have you ever known like since we're going to, you know, we're talking about this identity thing and, and racial identity. Have you ever known people of any race who tried to pass or wanted to pass Because what Rachel Dolezal did. For, and I'm only bringing her up because it's what. He, you know he mentioned her in the article mm-hmm. that we're talking about have you known people that have had that experience like that? try not become the president of an NAACP chapter I'm not talking about that that extreme but have you met people who've wanted to be like I wasn't born in the right body I want to be white I want to be black I want to be latino I want to be this I want to be bad no
0: no, no.
1: I
2: have so that's weird that you haven't so the closest thing I ever came to that was this guy who I who I dated for a while, who I thought was white, but had this kind of demeanor about him that was really like he had a swag, you know? And, and, uh, and after, uh, like our third or fourth date, he was like, Yeah, my, I'm black. You know, I was like, What? <laughs> <Word>. <laughs> his dad, his father is black. So he's basically light, you know, light skinned, a little bit lighter than my son, who will also tell some girl or whoever, Yeah, I'm black. What, what are you talking about? I was like, okay, and that was like a real moment for me. To it's so crazy. Yeah. Well,
1: when I well a few several years ago, I met a young lady who I couldn't tell what she was because she like did her lips the way like Kylie Jenner did them. You know, like she made them thick. You know, like Kylie Jenner so random. Yeah, but you know how Kylie Jenner did that. You know how they make fun of her online with the with the lips and and she's like you know had the swagger. Her daughter is biracial. Her husband at the time was um, black. And I remember just talking to her and, like, trying to find out, like, you know, more about her background, just getting to know her, whatever. She was living in my neighborhood at the time. And she had the cutest daughter. And I was just talking to her. And she was like, I was like, so you're, oh, you're white. She was like, yeah. She's like, I fucking hate being white. And she just said it with so much rancor, como un rancor like, a, like so much anger, right, mm-hmm. that I was like, okay, well, wh- wh- how did that happen, right? Because you get, like, you know, her parents had, like, a house in Cape Cod, you know, she's like. She's fine, right? So I'm mm-hmm. like, why would you want to be anything else? I mean, you're 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 you know you're doing well. She said, well, because I took a, a history course in college, and when I found out about you know our true history, it just made me so angry. I don't want to be white anymore. And I, then I have a friend now, who's Latina and something else. She's mixed, but she looks very much like you know just let la- let la- like she's a beautiful Latina woman, and she's like I'm a white girl stuck in a Latina girl's body, and you see her running like a lot and trying to get skinny and, and I'm like but why you're so beautiful we are who we are whatever you know and she's just like not comfortable and she's like if I could be born again and so I don't get that but I have I don't think Dolajal is like the only person going through it but I, I usually meet it with white women wanting to be something else this this time with this Latina is the only time I've ever I mean people who try to like straighten the hair and get blue contacts but actually want to become a different race is a whole other thing mm. right? Yes it it's is It's a different thing Yes it Performing is Performing black and brownness is different than than, yeah. than actually be like transforming yourself I think Yes By like, trying to
2: pr- pr- right like oh very much i mean and that brings up you know that, what rihanna said uh in in her vanity fair interview yeah about how it was sort of heroic is that what she said well so okay so
1: rihanna likened her to you know somewhat of a hero like rachel dolezal but then you have people like Nicki minaj who we were just talking about in the last segment who said you know these girls that are like like a uh, miley cyrus want to perform blackness they oh, want to compl- twerk. they want yeah. to do this they want to do that but they don't want to empathize so is it something is it it's like something between emp- can you can you empathize non-whiteness? Is no. that possible? No. So then it's not possible then for Rachel Dolezal to be because she's still well, firm with embody, black. No, she's still black. Oh, the embody no empathize the definition the great. definition
0: of empathy is is that you're not that and you're attempting to understand it.
1: Right. Okay, so it's like not empathy is, the
2: is feeling it. Like feeling what another person feels. So like you know, if in your father died and my father died, I can feel that, I can have empathy for that. So you're walking like in somebody else's shoes. Right. That's what you're saying, yeah. So I think we're all saying the same thing again with
1: that. But, but,
2: with, but with Miley, and, and I mean particularly Miley, you know, it's definitely, I can do this, I can move in and out, I can come in and out when I want to, and not only can I come in and out when I want to, but I can use these black women, as props, I can use who, 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 I can use the black culture. culture yeah. However, I would like to use it. I mean, and I thought about what Rihanna said in, in terms of Dolce, too. On to to just put some accountability on Rihanna. It's like, yes, being black is a cool thing to be, a great thing to be. Says someone for whom being black has been great. You know, Rachel Doljal is on some other. She's still, by the way. No, she's going to take that to the grave. She's take it to that to the grave. She's right. going to take it to the grave. Right. And you know, I mean, I just feel like. When I When I had written about... Um, when I wrote about it was just... Sort of the way that she co-opted her adoptive siblings experience. You know, she has black adoptive yeah, siblings. Yeah. Just co-opted what was good about it for her. You wrote about it for yeah. The Guardian. You wrote one yeah. a
1: beautiful... Actually, you wrote one of maybe my favorite piece. Oh, thank about you. that experience because you put yourself and your own background into it. And I was just like, whoo, totally overwhelmed by it. I think we posted it in our, on our show notes, but I want to post that again.
2: But So I just feel like... Th- for her to take on what was good about the blackness from all that her siblings knew was so the opposite of empathy. The yes. The opposite. It was the of, opposite of empathy. Of, hey, you know, and and for me, having biological white siblings, um, my parents' biological kids who have never had any interest really at all in what it feels like to be black in america um and sort of you know willfully colorblind and you know to the the opposite end of the spectrum of Doljal where she is like i see you and i'm gonna take what i want in your identity Mm -hmm. it just was heartbreaking to me actually and and shallow and mean
0: okay well having answered about 1% 1% of the questions that that topic brings up. We will tie things off because we are running out of time. We're just going to have but, to
1: bring her back on and, we'll and that, finish we'll, talking about Rebecca this. Rebecca will
0: come back on. Yes. We will we will have you give your thoughts in, uh, on this topic. Is racial identity changing? Uh, how is it changing? What's going to happen uh, in the future? And what do you think of our current moment? Uh, read the Wesley Morris essay in the New York Times Magazine and send us your thoughts. Uh, voicemails or emails at showaboutrace at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at showaboutrace and tell us what you think. And finally today, yo, check this out. Our tips and recommendations. We will go first to our guest. Rebecca, what do you have to recommend to listeners today? I
2: have two things. One old, one new. The old is the roots, how I got over. Both the album and the song Because the album has that, you know, crazily, uh, untouchably bizarre and elegant collaboration with Joanna Newsome right on. But also the title track, How I Got Over, the refrain is, someone has to care. You know, the first line is, out in the street, the first thing we're taught is, out in the street, you know? Out in the street, you can't put me on. The, okay, on the sorry, spot, but I definitely know it. <laughs> the first thing they teach us is not to give a fuck. That's what yeah. it. That's what it is, and and that someone has to care. And I just think that that's so prevalent and has just been really moving to me of late. And then the newer one is Margot Jefferson's memoir *Negro Land*, which I reviewed for the L.A. Times, and and I liked it very much. What I liked about it, especially, is that it was a, it, it's a different kind of memoir. It's not a traditional memoir. It's an it's a really un- unorthodox approach to too. It's almost like, um, like an analysis of growing up in this what she calls the third race, which is you know light skinned, upper class black folks in in this kind of bubble. But she she is as a critic, you know she writes about it from an objective point of view, really. And then there's a couple of moments where she reminded me of of the book that I wrote that was taking a stab at memoir, which is called Saving the Race, in which I married personal vignettes with vignettes from the souls of black folk, and then voices of contemporary black leaders, which I thought was Brilliant, but <laughs> if you don't co- say so yourself, that <laughs> was a commercial failure. You know, I mean, I got blurbs from Howard Zinn and Studs Terkel, and it was very exciting. We thought it was going to do great, and but it was really, really hard to market. So, mm-hmm. so the, my point in bringing that up is that I think Negro Land is an opportunity for personal memoir to have a different form. That's awesome,
0: Raquel. Okay, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to kick your ass for that. There you go. okay so I'm gonna recommend an old book but it's really one of my favorite books like ever written it's called the lost German slave girl the extraordinary true story of Sally Miller and her fight for freedom in old New Orleans and it's by John Bailey the, the so the book basically opens up in New Orleans in 1843 in the Spanish Quarter on a street lined with flop houses and gambling dens Madame Carl recognizes a face from her past. It is the face of German girl Sally Miller, who disappeared 25 years earlier. But the young woman is property, the slave of a nearby cabaret owner. She has no memory of a, quote, white past. Yet her resemblance to her mother is striking, and she bears two telltale birthmarks. In brilliant novelistic detail, award-winning historian John Bailey reconstructs the exotic sounds sights and smells of mid 19th century new orleans as well as the incredible twists and turns of sally miller's celebrated and sensational case did miller as her relatives sought to prove arrive from germany under perilous circumstances as an indentured servant or was she as her master claimed part african and a slave for life that book is, just, it is off the hook it's so good it's so good
0: all right. Mine is a little more uh, wonky and pedestrian, but there's a great new report out from ProPublica, The Color of Debt, How Collection Suits Squeeze Black Neighborhoods. I just finished reading it. If you want to get even more angry about the legacies of redlining and and how discrimination persists, check it out. It's important. Maybe we go, we'll get to that on a future show, but that's something definitely worth checking out. So. Thank you for Rebecca Carroll for joining us today. We Ooh, loved having you. It was you. great.
1: Thanks for having Yay. me.
0: And our producer today is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvell. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at ShowAboutRace or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com or send us a voice memo there as well. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Rebecca and Raquel and the elusive Bertrande Thurston, I'm Tanner Colby, and we won't stop until racism is over.